This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at WBEZ.org slash events. It's Curious City, where we take your questions about Chicago and the region and investigate, report, explore from WBEZ. Hi, I'm Alexandra Solomon, editor of Curious City. Curious City gets a lot of questions about Chicago's neighborhoods, their history, the ethnicities that shaped them, the kinds of industries that existed, and how they've changed over the years. Now, normally, we answer one question at a time. But today, we're doing something different. We're going to knock out a bunch of your questions. And we invited somebody to our studio who can help with that, historian Dominic Pasiga. He's kind of like a walking encyclopedia of the city's history, particularly when it comes to the neighborhoods. And you'll hear him take calls and questions from listeners with neighborhood-specific questions. Professor Pasiga, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Okay, Professor, here we go with our first question about Chicago neighborhoods. We've got Ernesto on the line. Hi, my question is, uh, when I first moved to to Chicago, I lived in Humboldt Park, and that was, at that point, mostly a a Puerto Rican neighborhood. That's changing a little bit. And there's other neighborhoods like uh, Ukrainian Village, which obviously get their name from, from that ethnicity. And that got me thinking, how often do neighborhoods change ethnic population? Is this a common occurrence? Does it happen frequently or less frequently? Where do you live now? I'm in Edgewater now. You're in Edgewater. Okay, and that's a neighborhood that's gone through a lot of change also, um, mm-hmm. and gentrification and so forth. The measuring ethnicity is kind of difficult. Each group has its different history and its you know, uh, different prejudices against them as far as moving in and out goes. Probably um, the longest group that has maintained its ethnicity is Bronzeville and the Black Belt on the south side which really developed about 100 years ago, 110 years ago. The Polish community on Milwaukee Avenue, uh, that settled about 1857 and and probably remained mostly Polish till about 1967. So that's among the white groups. That's among the the longest. Uh, And then it began to become more Puerto Rican, uh, Mexican. Actually, in Humboldt Park and Logan Square, Mexicans are are now a majority. So you see change going kind of constantly. The average, I would guess, would be about three generations. What's interesting, you know, I grew up in back of the yards, and there were 12 Catholic churches in two square miles, and, uh, I mean, better than Rome. And those churches were built to last forever, right? Well, most of them are closed now because the ethnic groups have moved out. Uh, You know, I was at a Polish church. Around the corner was a Lithuanian church. Up the street was a Mexican church. Then there was a German church and an Irish church. Now it's primarily Mexican. Uh, and that community doesn't need 12 Catholic churches. Are the last things that leave the neighborhood after the population starts shifting are the food stores? Mm-hmm. And, and that's true because the residents that leave last are the older people, and they depend on those food stores. Uh, you know, you can't buy good Puerto Rican food in a Polish deli. You can't buy good Polish... No, I, 
I, I've tried. But right. no. <laughs> you can't buy good Polish food in, a, in, an, in an Irish deli. So, you know, those are the last places to, to go, and, and the churches. When I, when I moved here in 83, I moved to Humboldt Park because we had family there. Sure, sure. You stay with somebody for a, a couple of months, maybe mm-hmm. six months or a year, yeah. and then you find a place nearby, and then you know, little by little. And where'd you move from, Ernesto? Puerto Rico. Puerto mm-hmm. Rico. So, you know, Poles call that rodace. Um, Italians call it paisani. Jews call it landsmen. You know, people that are from the same area who come together. There are, in the Mexican community, uh, little Michiquans and, you know, little uh, Norteños and, and places like In the Polish community, there's little Porhalal and there's little Warsaw. And to the outside, they're all Poles, they're all Mexicans, they're all Puerto Ricans, or they're all Jews, whatever. But to the inside... Mm, there are all these little divisions. Yeah. <laughs> well, Ernesto, do you feel like we've answered your question? I think we have. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ernesto. I enjoyed talking with you. Same here. So our question asker now is Andrew Waple, and I know he's got a question for you about the stockyards. Hey, Andrew, what's your question? So I was wondering what the record was at the stockyards for the highest number of animals, all animals, not just pigs, killed in a single day at the stockyards. And would they have slaughtered animals 24 hours a day generally? And if they didn't, how on earth could they have killed that many animals in a single day? Uh, They did not kill 24 hours a day. There were basically two shifts. The stockyard itself, that is the union stockyard, which was the livestock market, was open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It never closed. It was always there to receive uh, animals. And the biggest run at the Union stockyards was in the early 1920s, almost eight and a half million animals in one year. Chicago had developed first as a shipper's market in the 1860s. You know, it opened on Christmas Day, 1865. I mean, what better way to celebrate Christmas than to open a livestock market? (laughs) Uh, And and from that point on, it was always open. Uh, I worked there at the end of the uh, uh, stockyard era, and uh, I remember working Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Uh, we were always open just in case some farmer from Iowa brought some cattle in and had to be, you know, penned. Uh, so it's about 18.5 million animals in early 1920s. They did it twice, two years in a row. But from 1893 to 1933, there were never fewer than 13 million head of livestock on the market. Uh, and like I say, about two-thirds of those were slaughtered in Chicago. So in a in a single day, then, what would have been the maximum number they may have killed at any one given point in time on a on a single day? Well, that would be hard to hard hard to figure out since there were so many packing houses. There were the major packers like Swift, Armour, uh, Wilson, uh, Hammond mm-hmm. packing. Uh, then there were a bunch of small meat packers. But um, on a on an average day, Armour would kill about eighty five hundred hogs, uh, probably about uh, twenty five hundred cattle, and maybe about seven thousand sheep. Wow. I mean, it was just an incredible line of constant movement of animals uh, onto the kill floor. And, you know, uh, 500,000 tourists a year came to the stockyards at the turn of the century, the 19th into the 20th century. Sarah Bernhardt visited. Uh, the, the nephews of the Tsar uh, of Russia, uh, Japanese princes, and every presidential candidate came to walk in the pens and showed that he was a friend of the working man. Hmm. Uh, so it was really quite an interesting place uh, and, and, a, and a major attraction. Andrew, are you surprised by the amount that we were slaughtering kind of on any given day in the city? Oh, certainly. I mean, 18 and a half million animals in a year is just such an astounding number of a pig every second and a half or so. It's a question I've always wondered, and uh, 
just a great privilege to, to hear straight from the source. Oh, thank you so much, Andrew. I enjoyed talking with you. All right, Pasiga, up next we've got a question from Brian Brasco. Brian, what's your question? Uh, yeah, so my question is, what was the Ravenswood neighborhood or avenue before it is what it is today? Um, today there's a bunch of breweries and it's Malt Row and there's some catering places up there. It looks like there's some factories or manufacturing. I know there's like a pencil factory in Roscoe Village, but what was up there before? You know, Ravenswood, um, of course, was on the edge of the city. Um, there were a lot of truck farmers originally in the area, a lot of German and uh, uh, English truck farmers who would grow vegetables, et cetera, bring, bring it into the city to markets, maybe to the hay market, et cetera. The Budlong Brothers, okay, opened a pickle factory in the neighborhood in 1857, and then they expanded into the flower business and employed many Polish workers on a sort of seasonal basis who would just come up the, uh, the, the street. So the early commercial agriculture emphasized this truck farming, as I've said, and it was basically the mass production, interestingly enough, of pickles, flowers, and celery. Many taverns uh, opened along Lincoln Avenue, and that's also now, what do you call it, Malt, uh, Malt Row, right? Also, Rose Hill Cemetery opened in 1859. This is something that modern Chicagoans don't think about much, but Rose Hill uh, Cemetery and all cemeteries attracted not only mourners, but picnickers. Mm-hmm. It was an open space. People would bring picnic baskets and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, lay on the grass and spend the day. Uh, so this started to have increased traffic to Ra- Ravenswood, uh, and it began to transform this once mostly rural district. Uh, by the 1890s, you had the electric streetcars coming out. By the way, Ravenswood was brought into the city in 1889. It was a great annexation. We did this in order to attract the World's Fair of 1893 hmm. and, okay. and show New York that we were catching up with them and we were going to pass them. We didn't because they swallowed Brooklyn and all the other outer boroughs, and so they stayed the largest city. But uh, So Ravenswood comes into the city, and at that point, by 1890s or so, there's electric streetcar. And you have to understand how important that is for d- development. You can't really have a housing housing development unless you can get people to get to work sure. and move people around. Uh, so that becomes very, very important. Uh, and so, you know, while much of the history of the early community was German, um, much of that has disappeared, especially since World War I. But there are remnants in some of the shops and restaurants, as well as actually an original section of the Berlin Wall, which can be seen from the Brown Line. Uh, at Western Avenue. Oh, wow. So that's kind of interesting. Wow. Why bring it there? Well, because there were once Germans there, and there's not... Now I suppose there are some German kids who have moved to the suburbs who are moving back to Ravenswood <laughs> to get, you know, good uh, veal or something. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope we uh, answered your question, Brian. Do you feel like you're going to look at the neighborhood differently now? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to wait for, like, some hipster to open up, like, a pickle, a pickle shop or something <laughs> and talk about it. You know, and its history of like how it used to start there, but uh, that's that's pretty cool. Sounds like a good investment. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I mean, there's no pickle factories anymore up there, that's so right. that's true. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Brian, for joining us and for asking a question today. Thank you so much for answering my question. Thank you. So, Professor Prasiga, do you have a question? Something that you've always wanted to know about Chicago that you kind of got in your mind? Well, you know, Chicago presents itself as a constant question to me. Uh, I grew up on the south side. I've walked the city. I've driven the city. Uh, I'm constantly fascinated by the city. So uh, to give you one question, I couldn't possibly do, but there are a million questions, and that keeps me interested and excited about looking at Chicago, and hopefully will for a, a good long time. 
Well, thanks so much for joining us today and taking on all of our questions from our listeners and for sharing your curiosity with us. Thank you. This episode of Curious City was produced by Katie O'Brien. Jesse Dukes is our radio producer, Catherine Nagasawa is our multimedia producer, and Monica Ang is our reporter. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation. Dominic Pasiga is Professor Emeritus of History at Columbia College and the author of several books, including most recently, Slaughterhouse, Chicago's Union Stockyard and the World It Made. And while I have you, we need your help. We're trying to answer a question about whether any businesses here in Chicago have or had signs that indicate the business is owned by African Americans. Maybe in the window? If you're a business owner that had or has one of these signs, or if you've seen one somewhere in Chicago, we want to hear from you. What exactly did the sign say? And where's the business located? Email CuriousCity at WBEZ.org or tweet, Instagram, or Facebook it to us. And if possible, take a photo. Next time on Curious City, thousands of men in Chicago signed up to fight for the Northern Army during the Civil War. But different soldiers had different kinds of experiences during the war. The black troops started celebrating and were quickly told to end their celebration. Or Irish-American troops. They start to think, we're supposed to be freeing slaves, but on the other hand, we look less and less free. They begin to question, why should I be fighting? Chicagoans during the Civil War. That's next time on WBEZ's Curious City. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.